Hello, and welcome back to the Glossy Week in Review podcast. I'm your host, senior fashion reporter Danny Parisi, and I'm here with Glossy's editor-in-chief, Jill Manoff, who is back after a week off. Jill, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing very good. Um, last week, we had Sarah Sprigfeiner from Glossy Pop fill in for you, and she did a wonderful job. It was very fun to have. It's it, As much as I love doing it with you, Jill, it's fun to have other members of the Glossy team kind of come by and share their expertise and, you know, cycle in and out. So All good. It was so fun to listen to. I loved it. Great job, Sarah. Yeah, Sarah's great. Um, but you're back, and this week we're going to be talking about a couple of things. So we're going to talk about the bankruptcy of British fast fashion company Misguided, um, which happened this week. There was kind of indications that it was going to happen, but it all sort of went down this week and some of the complications there. We're going to talk about Kenzo's um, artistic director, Nigo, from A Bathing Ape, and his plan to have a new Kenzo campaign every month, um, sort of like what that means for the fashion calendar and fashion luxury and streetwear, all that stuff. Um, and then finally, we're going to talk about why fashion is so interested in home decor, home goods, lifestyle, all that stuff. There's been a lot of announcements in that space. But um, let's start with Misguided. So Okay, before we get even get into it, I just want to say I have much more expertise with American retail, American fashion, British fashion and British retailer is like I, I keep up with it a little bit, but it's definitely not my my main area of expertise. But um, this week, a British like fast fashion retailer, super like ultra fast fashion, I would say, uh, misguided uh, entered bankruptcy. Um there were kind of some strong indications that that was going to be happening um, since at least April. There were reports of different um, kind of rescue bids coming in. Maybe Boohoo might scoop them up, maybe somebody else. Ultimately, it was uh, they were bought by Fraser Group, um, which is a big British company. They own a bunch of brands like Kangol and Asian Provocateur and a bunch of other brands that I didn't recognize. I just picked out those ones that I did recognize. Um, Jill, well, we'll start with you. I, I feel like there's a lot of been a lot of bankruptcy administration kind of stuff for for the UK, uh, specifically fast fashion, high street kind of stuff um, in the last couple of years. Um, what's your take on on misguided? Yeah, well, I knew of it pretty well, and it, it's not really mentioned in many articles, but I, I know of it from shopping at Nordstrom. It, it had a presence at Nordstrom um, in the States, which um, is interesting. And I actually thought it was, you know, higher quality than the Sheins of the world. But um, I know that that is one of the factors. Um, like nobody can compete with Shein's prices and speed, it seems. Um, quality is not great. Is is the I mean I think it's a consensus. I I don't think there's any argument there. Um, but yeah, like you said, UK heavy in these fast fashion brands. Boohoo, many brands um, under the umbrella that fit that theme. Um, I say ASOS, ASOS. Um, but yeah, there are a lot. So it's, it's a booming department. I didn't know Frasers was behind some of the brands you mentioned. Um, the stories that I was reading um, and. There's sources, but it, they all reference something called Sports Direct, which is a sporting goods company, and also, I guess, their namesake department store. But um, yes, we'll see where they take it. I know that they made some mistakes on their road to trouble, which like opening physical retail, um, they were competing with Pretty Little Thing or doing even out outpacing them or um, seeing better, more better business than that than them. And also, and then it flip-flopped where Pretty Little Thing was doing like double the business of, of Misguided. So definitely 
I guess, didn't take advantage of some of those opportunities that some of these digital native companies have have latched onto and thrived because of that. Yeah, I, I also think that um, you, you were talking about like not being able to compete with Shein. I feel like when when you the when the brand proposition is a little more like style and quality, then you can kind of get away with like lots of different brands in the mix because it's you know they suit different tastes and aesthetics and stuff. But when the when the main selling point is just like speed and price, then it's like whoever's the fastest and cheapest is going to dominate. And I feel like that's what's happened with Shein. They're just so fast and so ridiculously cheap that like if that's if that's like the the space where you're competing, you're just not you're not going to compete with that. I still cannot get over Shein selling jewelry for literally like 50 cents. Um, and obviously it's not good jewelry, but still, I mean, even that that's ridiculous. Yeah. Was that a promotion, 50 cents? Because I was also reading that Misguided had some sort of a gimmick or shtick that was um, selling bikinis for a pound, like UK, UK oh, wow. money. Um, so that mm-hmm. was like a thing that they did. Um, interesting. So clearly trying to go for the, the bargain discount shopper. <laughs> I'm sure the like the margins must be just like, I don't even know. How do you get something down that cheap? Even if it's like the, the lowest quality imaginable still, like even shipping something alone should cost more than that. So, you know, I, I don't even, I don't even get how they do it, but, um, but yeah, it's just, I don't think that's something you can really compete with when there's giants like Shein, but even like Zara or some, like just people who have the scale and have the, the reach to get away with ridiculous prices and stuff like that. Totally. And this brand is well, like it's got name recognition. Um, I feel like it, Frasers could really do something with it or probably considering if you look at the numbers in 2018, it, it had reached $270 million in sales. 2020, it had slipped to $250 million. The word on the street is that Frasers bought it for $25 million in cash. Like, hello. Yeah, like pennies. Yeah, Bubkiss. Um, so that was we'll the see. biggest the the biggest deal of all. <laughs> we'll see. It's the equivalent of buying jewelry for fifty cents. Is buying a, a big <laughs> fast fashion company for twenty five million dollars. There was also a, a Guardian article. I don't know if you saw this, Jill, about how they're they're not technically like shut down because there was like this Fraser's bid and like they are still like in operation but there's a ton of reports from people like not getting like their returns aren't being accepted their orders that they bought are like not arriving so it sounds very chaotic over there maybe maybe it's just like a, a function of them changing hands and stuff but it seems you'd think that they'd kind of like maybe shut down the online store temporarily or something but no it's like you can still place an order right now uh you just might never get it so I mean, it's a bad look. They did not do some cool things, I guess, in terms of their suppliers. They weren't paying their suppliers for a very long time. Um, it, it said that their um, some folks within their supply chain were being forced to like fire people because they were owed millions of dollars from the company. Um, so really, you know, what drove them there was bad. I'm sure they could have um, resolved some of these issues prior to all of this this drama and, and let, I guess, I don't know, kind of emergency sell-off or, or bankruptcy or it, anyway, it's not yeah. a good look. No, it's definitely not a good look. And and one final note on Misguided, um, one of the things that they blamed it on kind of in, in public statements is soaring costs and inflation and, you know, things being expensive and stuff. And I was thinking that in the, in the beginning of the pandemic, there was like a big wave of 
people going bankrupt and stores shutting down and stuff because of obvious pandemic things. And there was sort of this sense that like, if you made it through to like 2021 or 2022, then it's like, okay, it's it's like behind us, like it's it, everything's stable. But now it feels like another wave of bankruptcies and closures and stuff is, might happen, not necessarily pandemic related, but just like e- economy related, you know? Yeah. Um, so, Joe, that's something you and I have been talking about the whole, like, the next six months, the next year, planning for the worst. All these, Every brand that we talk to have been has been saying that they expect it's going to be a very hard year um, and possibly more than a year. So it just I feel like this is the beginning of, of another wave of bankruptcies and closures and shutdowns and stuff. Yeah. And as people are pinching their pennies, interesting to see, like, I don't know if are they bu- are they buying any clothes? Are they moving from higher price clothes to more affordable fast fashion? Like, um, who's to say? I think it maybe depends on the shopper. Um, but yeah, we'll see how this all pans out. Well, I'm sure we'll be seeing more of it, just like you said. A little bit of trivia. Did you know that Misguided rose to fame via their partnership with the TV show Love Island? <laughs> no, I did not know that. Wow. No, there's a whole thing about how um, there was somebody on the on the cast that, I guess, refused to wear the fast fashion because they were a sustainability, I guess, enthusiast. Like influencer. No. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so then they they their new partnership is with eBay. They're they're changing their ways and they're being sustainable oh. resale. So anyway, it's, it is kind of a mm. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. I didn't know they wore clothes on Love Island. I never watched it. <laughs> I get all those love focused uh reality shows confused. I don't know what's what. Yeah. Love Island, Love Circus, Love, I don't, I don't know. I'm sure there's a lot blind. of Blind. What's the blind? Love, love is blind. blind. <laughs> don't act like you don't know the name. You know exactly. <laughs> What's it, it called? Love is Blind, maybe? <laughs> I don't know. That aired from 2019 to 2021. Um, uh, okay, let's move on. Let's talk about Kenzo. So I, I think, Joe, we talked a couple of months ago when Nigo, who, again, is the founder of Bathing Ape, also known as Bape, the, the very iconic, very beloved Japanese streetwear um, label. Nigo is the designer, and he recently was named the artistic director of Kenzo. I think that was in September, November of last year. Um, and you and I talked on this podcast about his first collection, and we talked a lot about him obviously coming from a more streetwear background, and then now he's at a luxury fashion brand, although Kenzo has always felt a little hipper and you know than some of the other like big luxury houses. Um, but this week, uh, he was talking about his his new thing for Kenzo is there's going to be a new campaign every month. And not just a new campaign, but with the campaign is going to come exclusive products and stuff. And and they're going to be sort of, I think they described it almost like a sequential, like unfolding narrative. So like the campaign this month will, it's not going to be a totally new thing next month. It's going to be, it's going to like evolve over time. Um, that to me feels very streetwear. Like that's how Supreme does it. Like these regular drops and and not being beholden to this like, okay, two times a year, four times a year, we do one big like collection. It's more like this little, you know, a regular installment kind of thing. Um, but I feel like we've seen a lot of influence from the streetwear business model in luxury fashion the last couple of years. That's not new. Um, but to you, Jill, does this feel like a, a, a bigger step for for luxury to to more closely kind of just mimic the streetwear model i mean it does i almost want to say well duh kenzo (laughs) like i almost even feel like the word campaign is like 
out of fashion, especially, I mean, depending on what they mean. I saw that they are also um, mirroring what they do in this worldwide campaign on social and digital channels, which usually, you know, this day and age, social and digital channels are the core of marketing, basically. But if we're talking billboards and and commercials and um, going beyond that, and you're calling that a campaign, campaign and you're going big every month in that way, print ads, maybe in, in the glossies like Vogue or whatever the spend is and this effort, okay, significant, I guess. It's just a new way to go about it. Um, you know, streetwear brands, some of the contemporary brands we're talking about that are doing drops either weekly or monthly, like monthly is even a little bit spaced like out slow, to me. Yeah. yeah, so it's like they're, they're con- continuous content, fresh content. There's that... Um, conversation constantly about the demand and the the need to keep it flowing and how do we, I guess, differentiate across channels? Is that necessary? What's the team that's producing this? Is it in-house? Is it influencers? So I just feel like everybody's moving faster. So for this to be a big like news push, a lot of publications wrote about it. It's it's interesting and it, and it is different for the luxury space, but it, it does call attention to luxury's um, slow move to, to keep the pace of the rest of the industry. Yeah, no, I, I think that's such a good point is, is that like it it almost is like kind of slow compared to some brands out there that that do drops every week or um, every couple of days or something. I, I think it to me feels a little bit like trying to find the, the perfect in-between point between like the kind of event f- feeling of uh, traditional luxury where it's like only a couple of times a year there's like a big, you know, new thing and balancing that with like the the cadence of like faster, newer, like, you know, keeping top of mind kind of thing. So maybe it's just the thought that once a month is the, is the perfect cadence to kind of still have like 12 drops a year is not a lot, like compared to some brands that do 52 drops a year or something. Um, And it, maybe it's enough space between them that they each feel distinct and they each feel like a big moment and a big reason to pay attention while still being regular enough that it kind of can compete. I don't know. We'll see. I mean, I, I, if I were running a brand, I think that's a, not a bad idea to, to try and find a split between those two things. Cause they both have value. Like I, I, I was always, I, I was thinking recently about Chanel and how people always like kind of joke about Chanel being so like behind the times and so resistant to do. And then they like blow everybody out of the water. They're like the second most profitable or or like most successful luxury brand in the world, despite completely ignoring all the like things that a lot of people say you need to do. So I don't know. I just, what's on my mind this week is just like trying to find some balance between like the prestigious kind of momentous schedule that luxury fashion has been on for such a long time with the, the demands of like social media and like having new stuff on the feed constantly. That's a really good point. And you got to wonder where they just had this very impactful um, fashion show in January. Kenzo did um, after Nigo, Nigo um, joined the company in September. Um, but it I think was, that's what we talked about, right? I think we talked about it on the podcast in February, right after the show. We did. And Kanye was there and Pharrell Fer- yes. was there. And it, um, it had the most, what, the, one of the highest media impact values of, of shows during that week. But like, where does a fashion show fit in? Is it... Um, you show your, 
a collection with of the drops for the next four months. Like, but it's really like about shopping the season and kind of a see now buy now play. Um, this exclusive product when they push it out every month. So, do they do more regular fashion shows? Do they not do fashion shows at all? Like, it, does that still apply? I, I'll be interested to see that. Yeah, definitely. Um, one more thing on this. I I feel like there's something here. I don't know how to articulate this, but but let me know if this sparks anything in you, Joe. I feel like there's something here with like the rise of like, I almost, I wrote in my notes like subscription culture. And that's maybe that's not exactly what I mean, but just the idea of like regular installments of something, whether it's regular drops or like subscription boxes in the mail, or even just like con content wise. Like I, I feel like the, the Netflix model, like in TV of like dropping an entire season of a show is like sort of going out of fashion a little bit. I think like people like to get stuff like in pieces at a regular cadence and just like have something to discuss. You know, I feel like a lot of the TV shows that like get a lot of discussion are ones that come out every week and people talk about each piece of it. And and I don't know, I feel like there's something there of like Nego like putting in this schedule and, and the fact that he called it like an unfolding narrative is maybe what got me on this path. Like the idea that each campaign is sort of like a part of a, story that's ongoing and has continuity between it instead of like each thing is a totally new reinvention. I don't know where I'm going with this, but I feel like there's there's something that something in the air around like this idea of like a sequential episodic kind of way of doing anything, whether it's fashion or TV or I don't know, yes, something there. I like where you're going with this. And it really, especially as somebody new coming into the brand um, and probably evolving it, um, or are planning to evolve it in in a bigger way than maybe somebody who was within the brand for a long time and just took over. Um, but you hear a lot about um, from brands who are maybe considering see now buy now or maybe stuck in the way of um, seasonal collections and it will come out in three months. Um, there's talk about people needing to kind of simmer on 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 a new idea and like be thoughtful. You're not gonna. It's not going to be an impulse purchase if you're seeing it for the first time and you're like, I need it. Not always. You kind of have to like, the trend has to sit in. You have to like, it takes time to catch on um, and to, I guess, become coveted, um, I think. So like as you're, I think that there's something to it. Um, Give people time. um, Maybe don't go too fast too soon. And yeah, easing them into the new way, whether it's every month forever or, or just even for the first year or two that that he's that he's in in business. I almost said in in his position. Yeah, I, actually, I think that's a very good point. And then last thing, and then we will move on. Uh, but the the idea that like sometimes there a lot of people like don't want to be the first person to wear a trend. Like they they want to see other people wearing it and and like be confident that it's something that's that people will wear before they do it. You know, it's like the the old thing about like. Every in in like a a riot, like everybody has like a brick number, which is like I'll only throw a brick if four other people throw a brick before me. But like one person has a brick number of zero, they'll be the first person to do it. And someone else has a brick number of one, they'll throw a brick if one of the person. So it's like some people have a trend number that's like you know they don't want to wear something the second it comes out on the runway. They're like I want to see other people wearing it first before I. So yeah, there's something there where you don't only need to cater to like the trend makers. There are some people who will buy it eventually and they just don't want to be the first. Totally. Um, I did not know that riot 
deal brick uh, anyway I, i'm learning a lot today danny <laughs> <laughs> I, I read about it years ago I, I might be like butchering it but it's something like that some people have like a threshold where they'll only do something if other people are if they've seen enough other people doing it basically um okay so let's talk about our last topic um this is i it's in our my notes it's sort of generally just fashion and home um but there's a couple specific things that came out this week gap launched a uh a kid's home collection, which was kind of funny, um, exclusively with Walmart. Uh, Majuri, which is a jewelry brand, did a collaboration with Claude Home. So there's there's been a couple um, specific like fashion brands getting into home this week, but also just in general recently, there's a, there's a good number of brands who have gotten into it. Um, My Teresa and Aquazura, both that got into home or did their first home collections in like, I think just the last couple of months. There, there's something here with, with fashion and home and and you know it's not totally totally new lots of brands have have done this in the past um but but Jill in your thoughts why why do you think fashion brands go here what what's appealing about it to them well during the pandemic i think like everybody for right now it's a way to safeguard your company to be able to um speak to shoppers at different i get of different mindsets i guess and this, I mean, for better or worse, you think you're in lockdown, you're decorating your home, we'll be safe. They're going to need home stuff, home stuff thrives, or they're going out, they can buy fashion. So that's one thing, I think, safeguarding, um, I guess, differentiating your, your products. Um, but also, yeah, as everybody, every brand wants to be a lifestyle brand, um, just serving the consumer at, at, for their every need or more needs um, does make sense. Um, there, yeah, a lot, a lot to it. I, I'm not sure. And growth, you're either growing by expanding to new markets or expanding categories. It seems that the the playbook there. How about you? Yeah, yeah. I I think a, a lot of the same things. Also, I, I wrote a story about this topic back in March, and one of the things I somebody told me was that home also has really good profit margins typically. Um, so it's it's a good bet in that sense. I think there's something interesting about something we hear from brands all the time. is like, we don't want to be everything to everybody. Like we want to focus. Like we don't. But at the same time, it is nice when, if somebody's wearing your brand head to toe and decorating their home with your, you know, like what brand doesn't want that? So I do think there's a temptation of like, uh, especially if you have like a kind of aspirational brand, like we've talked, like, the, the opposite of like a fast fashion, like one of those brands where the name, it means something and has a value uh, on its own. Like that's the reason like Supreme can get away with making like Supreme lighters and Supreme fire extinguishers and stuff um, because it's just the brand. So, but not every brand has that power basically. Um, but if you do, I mean, you can put your name on all sorts of stuff and, and it can probably be a safe bet. Yeah, a couple of things have surprised me lately, like in terms of going there. My Teresa, you mentioned, um, and when I've talked to their CEO in the past, it, he was very much about, you know, kind of they, they restrict their inventory or their assortment to 200 brands or more when everybody else is like thousands, like Farfetch. It's like they don't compete in that way. They're like, we know who our customer is. She's coming to us for. It was very specific, like when she's dressing for a, a special event, like it's like going out clothes, um, special occasion clothes. Clearly home is not, they, they're with their home category. Um, it's home, pet, travel goods. Um, I mean, it may, it, it doesn't fit that criteria. Also, um, Vestiaire Collective, I talked to them recently and um, 
obviously the real, real plays in this space. Um, you've talked to some resale companies that um, have launched collectibles and home. And I asked, you know, is that a growth opportunity to expand a home? Oh, no, we're going to focus. We're going to stay in our lane. We know what, what works for us. Um, so I don't know, some surprises. I don't really... I wouldn't be surprised if any retailer went there at this point or any brand went there at this point. One that, that did it well, I think, is Tanya Taylor recently. And you could see why it might work. She's known for her prints. Prints are fun on tablescapes. So anyway, things like that yeah. make sense. Yeah, some just work better um, for, for like with the product. Like like you said, the prints can just very easily be transferred over to like a chair or something. Um, I also think there there's... this. Well, I kind of said this already, but like the idea of like uh, being a lifestyle brand and, and you know, having somebody, if they like wearing your clothes, why not also like have your lamp or something? So uh, th there's, I, I think it's like part of like cultivating that like super fan kind of community, like people who, same with like drops and stuff, like the kind of people who, who uh, like wait in line virtually or, or physically and, or like get excited and anticipate like specific things coming out. You can kind of leverage that into, um, different categories and stuff. Um, I, one other thing, it reminds me of the live podcast you did a couple weeks ago with Eric Torsten, Torstenson from Torstenson. frame. Yep. Um, I remember him talking about the idea of not wanting to be everything to everyone and, and that, but also category expansion. Like, it, like there's, even if you don't want to be everything to everyone, you can still expand it to new categories. And I remember asking him, well, how do you know, like when you have the ability to like you, when you can get away with going into a new category and I forget his answer exactly, but it was kind of like a combination of, of data and also just sort of the gut feeling a little bit of just knowing when it's right and talking to the customer a lot and knowing when they'll accept it. Totally. And I, I forget, I feel like he touched on home. I, you know, that frame stores are so beautiful and they're really leading with design um, as they open new stores. And it just seems like you want to live in that store. That would make sense for them to launch home um, for sure. And I mean, we've covered Jenny Kane's home business and home expansion. WWD picked up a story on them recently. Um, but when we talked to them, they were just launching. It was one that was um, leaning on home sales during the pandemic as people maybe weren't buying apparel. Um, but really impressive numbers that shows the potential for the home category. Like right now, the, the entire business is looking to do 140, $140 million in sales in 2022. By 2024, only the home division is expected to do $100 million. So it's going to be a significant, significant part of the business, a huge um, business in itself. So um, it started in apparel, and, you, and it just it's that California, easy, clean aesthetic. It, it, the same applies to its every category. So it makes great sense. Yes, absolutely. All right. Well, how about we stop it there? Jill, this is always a pleasure doing this podcast with you. Um, for those of you listening, if you have not given us a, a rating and a review, uh, wherever you're listening to this, whether it's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, that really helps out a lot. So please do that. Uh, and you should subscribe as well. So you can hear Jill and I talk every Friday and also every Wednesday, Jill interviews somebody from the industry. Jill, who, who are you interviewing next? Up next, we've got Beth Gerstein. She's the founder and CEO of Brilliant Earth, which is fine jewelry. They've, since, they've recently IPO'd and booming, booming. 
All right, cool. Well, if you subscribe to the Glossy Podcast, you can hear that conversation. And again, Jill and I talking every Friday about the week in review. Thank you again for listening. 